This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hi, welcome to the Suffolk Law School IP Issues Podcast, periodic programs on intellectual property issues hosted by Lando and Anastasi. I'm Tom McNulty, an IP litigator with the Cambridge, Massachusetts law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. You can learn more about our firm at our website, www.lalaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss the various ways to protect intellectual property rights in software, an area of law that has been undergoing change in recent years. In particular, the ability to use patents to protect software has been reduced by a number of recent decisions, which might require innovators to pursue alternative means to protect their software inventions. Joining me today is my colleague, Tom McGinnis. Tom advises software clients in all areas of intellectual property law. He's successfully written and prosecuted numerous software and hardware patents, as well as advising clients on using other means to protect their software, such as trade secret, trademark, and copyright law. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Today we're discussing the various means to protect intellectual property in software. What various means are there? It's interesting. I think that software is rich in intellectual property rights, so there are lots of different avenues and ways to protect your software. Just about every known intellectual property right can apply to software. So, for example, trademarks can be used to protect software packaging names and logos. You can also use trade secret law, as source code itself is confidential information in many cases. And, of course, the more standard approaches around copyright and patents can be used as well. Let's start with the first you mentioned, trademark law. What's the theory behind trademark law generally, and then we'll discuss how it applies to software. So in general, trademark law is really about protecting consumers from vendors who may try to mislead them as to the source of goods. So we really want to try to be able to identify the source of goods in the marketplace by the average consumer. In terms of protecting a software with trademark law, what aspects of software can be protected? With trademark law, it will be the product names, slogans, logos, which can be found both on the product packaging of software if you happen to be dealing with shrink wrap software. Given that many software companies at this point try to distribute their software via websites, you can also use the websites, trademarks on the websites themselves and protect those. What rights do you get out of trademark law? Trademark law really allows you to prevent others from marking their goods or services with whatever mark that you have acquired protection for. So in terms of protecting software, this is not necessarily getting at the software itself. No, you can apply it to the software business as you could many other businesses, but a couple of things come to mind that are more software-centric concerns when in regards to trademarks. So the chief one that comes to mind is what class that you actually try to acquire trademark application or trademark rights in if you're to register it in front of the USPTO. In particular, many of my clients that come in the door really aren't sure what class to pursue protection under because if they are a sort of a shrink wrap business operation where they are mass distributing large volumes of software, that really does fall under a class 9 categorization with the PTO. Whereas if they are more of a customizing shop, so they may have a large product that they also go in and make tweaks to or customize with any particular implementation and any installation. Class 42 may be more appropriate. If you're interested in obtaining trademark protection, what are the steps you need to do? You need to file an application with the United States Patent and Trademark Office if you want to actually register the mark. Of course, under the common law, rights were acquired by commercial use in the product, but when the Lanham Act was passed some time ago, the PTO became the venue through which people who wish to acquire trademark rights could actually file applications. And there really are two bases for filing an application with the PTO. One is a use-based, meaning that you're already using the mark in commerce. And the other is an intent-to-use base, which means that although you're not currently using it in commerce, you do have a bona fide intent to do so. The advantage of the intent-to-use application is that when you're making plans to enter the marketplace, you can at least prevent others from using your mark, or at least prevent them from registering your mark. That's correct, especially if you have a mark that the business really believes is the right mark for them and perhaps has invested some effort in developing for example, 
with design firms or what have you, then you can, prior to actually using it in commerce, file the intent to use application so that you don't get ripped off later. If you get a trademark registration, how long is that good for? The term of a trademark is perpetual so long as you continue to use the mark in commerce. One of the other aspects of intellectual property law that you mentioned was trade secrets. The idea behind trade secrets is that your confidential information is yours and a misappropriation of that is a tort, although it has been codified in many states. As far as trade secret law goes, the aspects of the software that are protectable via trade secrets really are the source code and also implementation know-how. So if there is special ways to set up the application, for example, that you keep confidential, that could also fall underneath trade secret law. The underlying premise of trade secret law is that if information possesses economic value and it possesses the value due to its secrecy, then it's protectable via trade secret law. What sorts of rights does trade secret law provide? It gives the trade secret owner the right to prevent others from possessing or using the confidential information that makes up the trade secret. It's interesting, this area is interesting in particular because usually what rights you really have in terms of being able to enforce those rights really are acquired as part of a litigation process. So there's not necessarily a registration that occurs as you see within other areas of intellectual property law. Really the rights are defined as part of litigation. How do you obtain trade secret protection? So the keys to obtaining trade secret protection are really to use reasonable measures within your industry to protect information that you deem confidential. Usually that means stamping documents that include confidential information with some sort of indication that it is confidential. Other means would include making sure that in-house people that need to know are the only ones that get access to whatever information may be. So for example, source code, having it segmented and only giving it to developers that need to make modifications to it would be one way to really amp up or ramp up your trade secret protections. Also, when you license out your software, make sure to include confidentiality and no reverse engineering provisions within the license. And also employee confidentiality agreements are something that can certainly be used to show that you took reasonable measures to protect your secrets. You mentioned putting clauses in the license agreements when you license the software out. Do you know what the current state of the law is in terms of click-through licenses and how actively you have to try to get somebody to read or look at the license? Well, you certainly need to include some sort of step of acknowledgement, as you see in many license-out provisions for any software you may download off the internet or even beginning services, Gmail, for example. There is the need to click through and say, yes, I accept this. And as long as that's done, the courts have held that these are enforceable. How long is trade secret protection last? Like trademark law, it's perpetual, but in this case, it's so long as the secret is maintained. So if you have a situation where your secret has been disclosed by, let's say, an employee or something, it wasn't disclosed wrongly, then at that point, trade secret protection is no longer available to you. If it was disclosed wrongly, is there some way to maintain the trade secret protection, though it's now known? Yes. So if there is a disclosure that is in violation of an NDA or some other agreement, for example, then you can maintain the trade secret status. You would need to take action to prevent further disclosures, including probably court action. But provided that you do that, there certainly have been cases where the courts have preserved trade secret rights in the face of a wrongful disclosure. Was there anything else that comes to mind in terms of trade secret protection? Well, I think that you see it as being most pertinent with business models for large software vendors. So enterprise resource planning vendors, for example, or ASPs, application service providers, companies that really focus on not necessarily volume installations, but customized installations where every agreement is sort of its own creature. Those are really where trade secret protection is most pertinent, although certainly you could argue that it could apply to shrink wrap software as well. A third theory you discussed was copyright. The legal theory behind copyrights is really to protect authors' property so they will publish and create more. The statutory basis for it is the same as that is for patents. Again, the general idea being we would like to have more works of authorship and therefore protect that property and you'll get more. What aspects of software can you protect via copyright? Copyright really is 
most useful for source code and in defense of verbatim copying or slavish copying, but it also can be used to protect the associated screen displays, the theory there being that the screen displays are a direct result of the underlying code. What right does copyright law provide? So it gives the owner the right to prevent others from copying and distributing, at least in the realm of software, those two activities. In addition, it would prevent others from creating derivative work, so taking your source code, making modifications to it, and incorporating that into another work. In terms of preventing others from distributing, if they independently were to develop substantially the same code, does copyright law do anything for you there? Unfortunately not, if they could actually prove it, but that's a difficult defense to bring. A lot of the work has been copied, so a lot of verbatim copying, then they're going to have a difficult time proving that in court. However, the theory is certainly there from a defense perspective. If they create it on their own, then it's their own work, it's independently created, but you have no copyright in that. What steps do you need to take to obtain copyright protection? Copyright really vests when the author fixes the work in a tangible medium of expression. So what that means in terms of common speak is that when you write it down or in a computer situation when you type the source code in and actually have it within your editor and save to a hard disk, at that point you've achieved fixation with an intangible medium of expression and at that point you have copyright. Now that being said, there are some advantages to registering copyrights. They can particularly play in when you're dealing with perhaps small companies or individuals in terms of being very advantageous. One of those is is the ability to sue for statutory damages and not actually have to prove actual damages as part of your case. That obviously lowers the burden in terms of actually receiving money or compensation in terms of someone infringing your rights. But also another advantage is the fact that you can get potentially at least reasonable attorney's fees if you have registered your copyrights. Again, these things need to happen prior to infringement. That's an important point. Prior to infringement as opposed to prior to bringing suit? That's correct. So if you want to get reasonable attorney's fees and statutory damages, then you need to have registered a prior to the infringement. The theory there being that when you register it, it puts potential infringers on notice. What do you need to do to register a copyright? The Copyright Office accepts applications for registration. It's actually a fairly easy step to take. Often my clients will take care of it themselves after we point them to the proper forms. It's, as I understand, relatively inexpensive. Very inexpensive, that's correct. Right at the moment. What term does copyright <laughs> law provide? Currently it's life of the author plus 70 years, at least when you're dealing with a living author. I believe it's 95 years beyond the date of publication for a corporation. But the Sunday Bono Act changed that, and it does appear to be somewhat of an ever-increasing number. In fact, I can remember at least one case where someone was challenging the validity of the copyright, the Sunny Bono Copyright Act that actually extended the term, under the theory that it was basically going to continue to extend forever. One of the popular theories is that every time Mickey Mouse nears the end of copyright protection, an extension is granted. Yes. Are there any special concerns regarding software that would apply to copyright? Actually, there are several in terms of copyright. So one thing that comes to mind is who owns the copyright, because the copyright statute actually has a pretty vicious statute of frauds provision that requires any sort of assignment of the copyright to be in writing. So that's one issue. The other issue is that the copyright vests in the author unless it's assigned. So for example, let's say you have a small software concern and you hire some contract help to generate some of your source code, some of your programming. In that situation, unless you have a written agreement in place, they're going to own the copyright. And so while you may have a license to use it, the idea of distributing it or making additional copies of that sort of thing, all those rights that a copyright provides, really vest in your independent contractor. That's one 
issue. Another issue that is hot now is in regards to open source that's certainly related to copyrights. Open source is a pretty wide topic in terms of what it encompasses and what it includes. But at the high level, at least, the thing to watch out for in terms of open source is to make sure you understand what licenses you have if you are licensing in software to include in your software products, what those licenses obligations are, because you can get in trouble using open source code. And when you say in trouble, as I understand, at least some of the open source licenses include disclosure of your code kinds of provisions. That's true. So there's this concept of copyleft is the common term for it. And there are several licenses that will require, if you bring their source code into your code base and you create a derivative work, theoretically the person or company that you acquired your licensed in code from could force you to disclose your source code. And there have actually been several instances where back and forth between companies, for example, that the TiVo provisions are something that are pretty well known in the open source community, where TiVo actually had gotten around some of the provisions by locking down their hardware. And in response, the authors of the GPL, General Public License, added provisions to try to prevent that. So it's sort of a battle of licenses to some extent, but definitely you could get yourself into trouble if you incorporate code and don't know how you licensed it in. Are there any other provisions of open source licenses that you need to be aware of? I think in general that the most open source licenses are fairly innocuous. Of course, it's a license by license basis. Most of them most frequently require really three things. A disclaimer stating that the provider of the source code is not liable for the source code's correctness or use. A copyright slash attribution statement. It's a way of publishing the fact that they created this nice, useful function that you're including, so they want to make sure that, that perpetuates. And then, of course, often a copy of the open source license itself. I believe the last of the intellectual property areas that we were going to touch on was the use of patents to protect software. And what sorts of patent law apply to software? There are at least two versions of patents that you can acquire in the United States and abroad for that matter in software. One is the design patent and the other is utility patent. Design patent covers kind of the look and feel of something. And, you know, a design patent typically includes a drawing and the claim is essentially what's in the drawing. And that's not the sort of thing that you customarily think of when you're thinking of software. How does design patent apply? It's interesting. This is actually an area of the law that is being stretched a bit by the practitioners that are out there, but, but stretched successfully thus far. <laughs> Far, at least with the PTO. So where design patents really started out protecting software, historically speaking, were icons that you would see on the screen. That was the first sort of device that it covered. As time progressed, the PTO started granting design patents to icons that were animated. So perhaps you have a printer icon that shows a piece of paper moving through the printer and moving its way out. That could be protected via design patents as well. But recently, companies like Apple, for example, that's a strong design company, have been filing patents on actual user interfaces so, for example, the iPhone slide to unlock is something that they sought protection on and got protection on. All that via design patents. What rights does a design patent give? It gives the owner the right to prevent others from making, using, selling, or offering to sell an embodiment of the invention, whatever it is that's within the figure, as you talked about earlier. So in terms of, for example, the Apple sliding unlock feature, they could actually prevent others from having a sliding unlock, even if the code that's sort of driving that is completely different? That's correct. It could be absolutely completely different, but the fact that it's with the ordinary observer would be similar would be enough. And what's the term of a design patent? It's a 14 years from the grant date. What do you need to do to get a design patent? Much like utility patents and trademarks, you have to file an application with the PTO. However, there's certainly a difference from trademarks and patents in that the application gets a little bit more rigorously examined for the patentability. 
as I understand it, one of the potential advantages, particularly in a fast-moving field like this of design patent, is the time under which the application is being examined is typically quite a bit shorter than a utility patent. Typically, the filing costs are less. That's one advantage. And of course, as you just stated, the turnaround time typically is much better as well. Are there any special concerns relating to software? Well, the only really strong concern that comes to mind is the fact that in order to properly claim a GUI or an icon, you do need to show it within the display. It's this sort of a technical within the law, but just user interface elements outside of a display screen would not fly with the PTO. And GUI is what? Graphical user interface. <laughs> the last of these is kind of your classic utility patent, which is at least what I would think of in terms of protecting a software type invention. So why don't we discuss how that applies, and in particular, how the application of utility patents has changed over perhaps the last couple of years. So what aspects of the software can be protected with a utility patent? Almost any facet of software can be protected with a utility patent. So the interface points within the product, software implemented processes, some stuff that goes on under the covers, but methods that are performed by the software can be protected. It's very broad. The rights that a utility patent provides? Much like a design patent, it gives you the ability to exclude others from offering to sell, using, making a product that embodies the invention. And the term that a utility patent protects your invention, it's a bit longer than a design patent. Provided it gets through the office quickly enough, <laughs> yes. 20 years from the filing date. Of course, it's subject to patent term adjustment as well, so hopefully that'll give you back some of that patent term. Do you have any idea right at the moment the typical delay between application and issuance? You know, it's gotten better. When I first started practicing, it was probably, for a software patent, at least five years. I think that it is improving underneath the current administration. We've seen definitely a pickup in terms of getting first actions from applications, and of course that pickup results in eventual decrease in the amount of time till allowance. We mentioned right up front that there have been some changes in how utility patents are now being applied in terms of software, so perhaps we could discuss some of the cases that have come down within the last few years on that. There has been a lot of activity, and the law continues to change. So obviously the first one that most software folks will mention is Bilski, which is a case that came from the Supreme Court. In terms of its play with software patents and software patent applications, I think that the biggest impact has been the fact that there's a lot more art being asserted. Really the standard for what combinability is has really been decreased by Bilski. So the examiners, any sort of computer-related reference they can find, they have no trouble stating at least a reason to combine those, even if it's a post hoc reason that they've come up with on their own, that happens. So that case was definitely sort of an issue in terms of making it more difficult to acquire software patents. There have also been a number of cases on what aspects of software patents are even subject to being protected by patent law. Yes, that's true. So, for example, the Nuchin case is one that comes to mind that was really directed toward a watermark within a signal, so it was a propagated signal claim. And in that case, the court invalidated the patent, saying it was not patentable subject matter because the signal was transitory in nature. This was a bit of a surprise and did lead some commentators to worry that computer-readable medium claims, which are really claims directed toward the medium which software is stored, may be in trouble. And in fact, another case that's even much more recent, CyberSource really invalidated the computer readable medium claim style or a Beauregard claim in a way that was surprising to a lot of folks, myself included. The CyberSource case, what was at issue in that case? So the method was really a method of detecting fraud, at least as it was painted by the court. If you look at the patent and the claims, definitely had that intended use, I suppose. But the claim elements themselves actually recited in the method the use of the internet, for example, and also the use of TCP IP addresses, which 
are very technical in nature and in my mind kind of didn't jive very well with the court's reasoning that the method was not tied to a machine. To me it would be quite difficult for a human being to process TCP IP addresses with the speed needed to really meet the claim elements but the court decided that in fact it was not patentable subject matter under 101 meaning that it was not statutory subject matter because the claims were directed toward or at least encompassed mental steps. There have been some other Section 101 decisions as well. Why don't you tell us about Kaminsky? Kaminsky was really directed toward a method of arbitration, but the claims, unlike CyberSource, really did not include any sort of tie to a computer or a computer executing this method of arbitration. And the court found that that was enough to invalidate under 101, again, not statutory subject matter. Kaminsky was particularly interesting as well because the initial opinion that came out stated that the business method aspects that were disclosed in Kaminsky because they were not patentable subject matter, could not contribute to patentability, even if they were put onto a computer or executed by a computer. There was some general hubbub about that, and the CFC actually ended up retracting that initial opinion and replacing it with an opinion that did not include that dicta. There's one last case that's worth discussion, the aristocrat case. The aristocrat case is probably a little bit more narrow in terms of its application, but again, it's a situation where you're seeing sort of the fringes of software patents being nipped at by the courts. The aristocrat decision really dealt with the method for determining jackpots in a slot machine, and it did not disclose an algorithm for an underlying limitation that was a means plus function limitation. The court actually invalidated the patent, holding that there was no disclosure, since the algorithm wasn't there within the disclosure for that claim element, the claim element did not have support within the application, and therefore the patent was invalid. If you're drafting a method claim in means plus function format, it's no longer sufficient to support that with something along the lines of the method is performed on a general purpose computer? No, it would not be sufficient. If you're going to go after means plus function claims, which certainly do have their advantages, you'd need to include some sort of flowchart diagram or something that describes the underlying steps that one would instruct the computer to do or the computer would perform when actually performing that functionality. It is worth noting that in all of the cases we just discussed, there was certainly no broadening of patent protection for software. It seems to be a continuing trend. Yes, continuing negative trend if you're looking to obtain protection. thought maybe we could close by just discussing some general protection strategies for various business models. I'm lucky in that I get to represent both small independent inventors as well as you know larger concerns and I typically kind of tear up or think about how to protect software at least in three categories. Obviously it needs to be tailored to each client but the first tier which I think is pretty much required if you're going to be a going concern in the software industry I consider at least four different things that need to be included in that tier. One is to make sure license out provisions protect the software as confidential information or trade secrets as I discussed previously. The licensing out of your software is your business and so you know it's worth time and effort to make sure your license agreements are solid. They should at least include these provisions. Of course, there are other provisions that should be included as well, but that's something that came to mind in regards to the intellectual property aspects of the license. Because it's so cheap and easy to do, registering copyrights in at least your major releases if you're a software vendor is something that I also place into this tier one sort of must-have category. I also recommend applying for trademarks for protection to protect major product releases. If you're taking the time and effort and building in all this functionality and you wrapper it with a mark of some sort, it's worth 
time and effort. Trademarks are not an expensive option, and they're definitely a good place to go. Also, fourthly in that tier, you need to monitor your code base. Again, thinking here more about open source licenses, but developers tend to, unless you have some strong policies in place, and maybe even in face of the strong policies, will tend to bring in code they know works. They have their own bag of tricks, and they will want to bring that bag along with them, and there could be open source in the bag, so you need to make sure you understand where your code is coming from prior to putting it into your product. So tier two, this I would see for more of a, not necessarily an independent inventor or small concern, but one that's perhaps not a large player either, sort of a mid-level tier in terms of the cost. This is where patents come in, and my recommendations there tend to focus on design patents for highly visible and distinctive UI elements. So something that really sort of sets the product apart in terms of the look and feel is something that is definitely worth considering. Design patents, again, at least compared to utility patents, are not that costly, and they fall somewhere in between utility patents and copyrights usually in terms of the cost. And it's something that I recommend for sort of the mid-level companies. The other aspect that I usually recommend is the use of utility patents, but again, to cover really the strategic functional advances. So you need to you know focus on what sets the software product apart in terms of its interface points. So how it works with the user, the functionality it provides to the user, those sorts of things really need to be covered. Also, if it interacts with other systems, again, it depends on the software itself, but some software provides the advantage, maybe some of its key advantages because it works well with other systems. And so interface points between systems is also an area where utility patent claims can help you. Finally, I think in terms of sort of the strategic advances that you may want to patent to the second tier would be internal advances where it really makes a big difference in the performance of the product. Otherwise, the internal stuff, I tend to wait till later because it's harder to find infringement or determine infringement for how things are actually done inside the code. I guess that leaves us with kind of the big boys. Yep, those companies, you know, when you're in the billion dollar or more range, they tend to really want to arm themselves with as many patents as they can. And so those companies will, of course, do all the things from the first and second tier, but on top of that will often try to patent aspects of their software that provide some sort of tactical advantage. So it may not be, you know, a strategic advantage for the product, but still it's something that's novel and non-obvious and does set their product apart in some way, at least over the short term. They will try to go ahead and get patents on those as well. I recommend they do so. Okay, and one other aspect of the people that can afford it is if you can build up a patent portfolio, even if it's things that you're not actually using in your code, it does give you some sort of offensive weaponry. Should somebody come after you, you might have something to fight back with offensively. Absolutely. That is a common practice. Well, thank you for listening to this session of IP Issues from the Suffolk Law School. A very special thanks to my guest, Tom McGinnis. Tom, if anyone has any further questions on today's topic, how can they reach you? They could reach me at my email address, tmcginnis at lalaw.com. And you can reach me at tmcnulty, M-C-N-U-L-T-Y, at lalaw.com. Have a great day, and thank you for listening. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.